project. And we're out ahead of that as the DOT in funding studies so that when that money becomes available, we'll be able to fund projects like a bus rapid transit that we're studying right now to go from the USF area to downtown Tampa. You said this area is underfunded, which is something I read and hear over and over, but I'm underfunded compared to what? what it seems like a lot of money is coming in. Why, why, why are we underfunded? Well, I think part of the problem is is that uh, we really didn't have a dedicated funding source for transit. Over time, we've never had that option. Believe it or not, we've had over 30 projects that were studied um, in the last couple of decades to look for federal funding for transit projects. And the thing that's held us back is we didn't have the local money to get the money the, the project started. They want to so, see a local support for it before they sort of match the funds. The federal government, one of their top criteria is to make sure that the local government is going to operate and maintain that system if they put the money in it to build it. Mm-hmm. And so they have to make a commitment and show that they have the financial resource to operate and maintain that system for a period of time. Um, the other thing they look at is the cost of the system versus the projected ridership. And so you have to have a decent ridership projection in order to be able to cover the cost of the system. Well, this is interesting because it sounds like public support is lacking if you're not getting the local funding and you're not getting the ridership. I mean, are we talking about just, you know, how do you convince people that this is what they want? Is there something in our culture? Graham, what do you think? I mean, you've been reporting on this area for a long time that people just want their car and that's what they want. I would add two things. One, we are quite spread out for a metro area. Other metro areas can be a little more densely populated. And so that can make transit uh, a little bit more of a challenge because you don't have the big pockets of density that uh, transit often uh, can make for successful uh, transit. The other thing is just the stigma. People think about certain types of buses and they have a, a vision in their mind, which may not be accurate, but that uh, that they don't go where they want them to, uh, that uh, they're going to have to ride with people they don't want to ride with, uh, that it's going to be hot, that they're not air conditioned. So some of that is breaking down that stigma so that more people think to themselves, well, I don't have to drive today. It's a nice day. Why don't I get on the bus? The next day, maybe they do drive, but just get them out of their cars once a week uh, or two times a month. That would help a lot. Robert, describe what is bus rapid transit? Why, why is it faster than taking a bus? So bus rapid transit is a concept that, uh, that came up about 20 years ago where you use a, a motorized vehicle with rubber tires as opposed to a, a rail vehicle with steel wheels. And you, you can operate it more flexibly on a roadway, but you still need to dedicate the space for that vehicle. You still need to provide the service to the, the customer, the, the amenities like being able to board a level, uh, having the platform available to bo- uh, board the vehicle. Uh, at the same level, to be able to pay for your ticket off of the vehicle so you don't have to to waste other people's time paying the fare to the operator, having other types of technology like Wi-Fi, like USB ports, um, maybe having more to doors. To make it enticing. Yeah, and, you know, having, having a vehicle that um, is comfortable and operates smoothly, but also has travel time advantages so that it can, in a sense, pass up the congested traffic and get you to your destination on schedule. Why people in New York would take the subway, exactly. which is crowded, hot, and, you know, often smelly. Right. But it gets you there in just a couple minutes. Exactly. Dedicated corridors. Right. And so the, the thing about public transportation is that, they, that the systems need to operate frequently and also reliably. So you can actually predict when you're going to get to your destination because people not only value their time, 
but they value how much the time varies from day to day. So if one day it takes you 20 minutes, the next day it takes you 40 minutes, that extra 20 minutes is really awful. Um, because it's controversial. I mean, bus rapid transit has been controversial in Hillsborough, in St. Petersburg, in the city, St. Pete Beach. Um, who wants to talk about why it's controversial? Graham? Uh, I'll take a shot at that. I think part of it is uh, the cost. Some people see the cost and they think it's just buses. Uh, They don't think of the rapid part. And one of the keys to this, uh, as Robert touched on, is it needs to be rapid. It can't just be a regular bus system. It can't even be an express bus. It needs to um, move people faster than they're used to. Uh, And I also think some of the routes uh, that are being discussed, they have some challenges. There's a lot of stoplights on some of them, like the one that is proposed to go out to St. Pete Beach. Lots of stoplights. Uh, how are they going to get by that? How are they going to make sure that that bus moves fast enough that they get enough people on the bus so that it, it is a success? One of the keys, I think, for bus rapid transit in our area, since we don't have it yet, is to make sure that the first one or two are a success. It doesn't need to be perfect, but it can't be a disaster because otherwise we probably won't get another shot at it because there won't be any public support for it. And St. Pete Beach has really been opposed to it. David? Yeah, well, as a funding partner, because we're providing a good amount of the, uh, the money for the Central um, Avenue bus rapid transit, um, we get a lot of input from folks who say I would use it. But then there's a lot of folks who look at it and say, well, you're going to take a lane that was being used for cars and you're going to make it available for buses. I and think that's the, a big part of the controversy. You're taking away one of our car lanes. Right. And even though, you know, we've studied those roads where it's not being taken on the entire route, it's most of it, not in the entire, but in the parts that it is, we've done studies or the, the, the transit agency did studies that we worked with them on that showed that we can do it. It, it, it will work. Now, Vehicles that want to turn in and out of businesses or properties can still use that lane Mm -hmm. when the bus isn't right next to them, obviously. But they can use that lane for access to and from properties. But um, it'll probably take people to get some time to get used to it and see how it works. It's the first one we've done, but there's ones all over the country that have worked very well. Now, it Um, is happening. Even though mm -hmm. St. Pete Beach has Mm -hmm. expressed opposition and said they weren't going to help fund it. It is happening. Well, it is in the federal process right now. They're hopeful to get the federal approval within hopefully the next six months or so. And -hmm. that would be the final thing needed in order to move forward and and start to to build it. And that would would move from downtown St. Petersburg to St. Pete Beach. Correct. Sounds simple. I guess I would add that, that, uh, as Graham was mentioning before, that the bus rapid transit is part needs to be part of a system. And there have been dozens and dozens of these systems. A friend of mine uh, has a research center in Chile where they have a really cool database that lists all the BRT systems around the world, all the details. Um, but they really are a proven technology. There just isn't one here yet. And so people are not quite familiar with how it would work. But I think as long as it's part of a system that allows people to access the the corridor in different ways, allows them to achieve that savings and experience that that quick and reliable ride, I think uh, a lot of people will be won over, I think. And there are technologies to allow the buses to have priority at the traffic signals. So that's something that also exists in many other places um, that that I know is included in the in the plans for BRT here too. Oh, so it is possible. It is possible. The technology is there. Yes. Graham, 
Hillsborough County last year passed a 1% sales tax for transportation called All for Transportation. But there's been a lot of opposition, including a lawsuit filed by Hillsborough County Commissioner Stacy White. He opposed the amendment language that said a citizen committee would recommend how the money will be spent. What's the latest on that lawsuit? Well, the tax is being collected, but it is tied up in a in some court challenges. Uh, and most recently, the uh, Florida House has uh, stepped in to support those court challenges. So we'll have to see uh, exactly where this ends up. But the tax is being collected right now. Wait, the House, the House of Representatives is supporting the challenge. Yes. So basically, is showing opposition to yes. That. Uh, now. The Senate has said that it likely won't take it up, so that could just go nowhere, like a lot of things in Tallahassee mm-hmm. when one side takes it up and the other the other doesn't. Uh, but there is quite a bit of opposition uh, in terms of, from a I should say there is some opposition from the legal standpoint that they believe the language was uh, confusing. Now, of course, there's lots of people who thought the language in the amendment was perfectly clear and everyone knew exactly what they were voting on. But that's more or less what they're attacking is the language that people were confused about what this tax would do, what it would pay for, whether it would pay for roads, whether it would pay for uh, public transit. Um, and also, who was going to have oversight of the money? It, I think that was the, that's the opposition to the county commissioner who sued, um, was that the county wasn't going to have oversight over this this money. Unelected officials mm-hmm. were going to have oversight. Is that it's, part of it? it? That's part of it. That's part of the opposition. Now, I should say, again, there's lots of people who support this and think that it was – uh, was clear and the people did understand what they were voting for. So it, we're in a little bit of a limbo right now as to where this will be you know, six months from now or a year from now. But the tax is being collected. It is being collected. So eventually, when all the legal wranglings are over, it can be distributed if it goes in their favor. Yes, if it goes in their favor, yes, right. it could be distributed. Yes. Okay. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham, and today we're talking about the situation with traffic and transportation in our area's cities. My guests here in the studio are Robert Bertini, Executive Director of the University of South Florida Center for Urban Transportation Research. Graham Brink is a business columnist with the Tampa Bay Times, and David Gwynn is the District Secretary of Transportation for the Florida Department of Transportation. So how is the meteoric rise of Uber and other ride-sharing systems, other ride-sharing vehicles, how is that affecting transportation? Is it affecting transportation? I'll ask you, Robert. So I think it has been transformational, and it's opened up opportunities for people um, who didn't have uh, travel options in the past. Uh, Certainly it's changing how cities and how – uh, entities like the airports and so on are using their curb space. And so cities are are having to figure out, well, how do we manage the curb space, thinking about curb space as an asset as opposed to just something where you put parking meters. So I think it's changed the conversation a lot. If they become automated, uh, using automated vehicles, how will this change the landscape? I think some people are concerned that in some places uh, – these vehicles are increasing congestion and they're not really being managed proactively. You know, so a city on their own streets don't have the ability to manage traffic as uh, as they would uh, perhaps like to. So I think as we are moving forward in this in this uncharted territory, I think there are a lot of research questions, a lot of questions about how these systems are serving uh, 
people with disabilities and, and other issues. So I think it's a great topic for research and a great topic for public debate. So you taught, you mentioned automated vehicles, and I wanted to ask you about that, David. What, what role do you see self-driving cars or our autonomous vehicles? Is that going to play a role um, and is it going to play a role soon? I, I believe it will. How soon is probably the question. Um, the technology is developing very rapidly. Uh, DOT actually has uh, started construction of the SunTrack Center over in Auburndale, which is going to be a testing ground for all types of new technology. People from all over the world will be coming in to try out their technology in a simulated real-world situation with blocks and streets and traffic signals and things like that. The automated truck industry has actually already started to operate automated uh, trucks, and we've allowed them to operate in platooning. In other words, a bunch of them in a row close together on the turnpike, but with drivers in the vehicles just in case something happens. But they're running automated, and they see that as being uh, a big benefit in the future to be able to have the, the, the freight moving uh, in that manner. So that's happening now. That's happening now. I think a lot of people don't realize that this technology yeah. is already happening. Looking at new vehicles now, there are elements, ingredients of automation. There's um, adaptive cruise control. There's lane keeping. There's automated parking or parking assist. There are warning systems. There's automated braking. So if you're in stop and go traffic, you can set the car on automatic and it will accelerate and decelerate and brake. And I think slowly people are getting more accustomed to trusting those systems um, to keep them safe. Graham, I wanted to talk to you about something that, that you wrote in, your re- in a recent article about the commuting. You, where you, you said that walking outpaces public transportation. Uh, 20,482 people consistently walk to work each day, outnumbering the 18,994 who take public transportation, according to census data. That, that amazed me. Uh, It amazed me as well. That's part of the American Community Survey that comes out once a year. It's sort of like a mini census of several million people across the country. And uh, that's indeed what it says here. Uh, In many areas, uh, public transit uh, way, uh, uh, there's way more people riding public transit than walking, Uh, you know, overall across the entire nation, which includes a lot of rural areas, but 5% of people ride public transportation. Here, it was like one point something percent. It was very low. As we've touched on here, we don't have a very good public transit system. The other thing I'd point out is, uh, that, that that may be coming uh, more is uh, people working from home. That's the other thing that stood out in that study was across the nation, about the same number of people ride public transit as work from home. It's about 8 million people in each category. Here, the people that work at home outnumber the people riding transit about six to one, uh, which wow. again is part of it is because we have a slightly older workforce. Many of them uh, see working at home as a perk and their businesses let them do it. But the other part of that equation is that we don't have a very good public transit system, so people don't ride it. Mm-hmm. And, and geography plays a part in this, right? Because we have this bay that separates our two biggest cities. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I get emails, phone calls from people, say, from South Hillsboro, Palo Beach, that area, who tell me, like, I'm not going to get on a bus. One, they're hard to find, and two, it's too far to go. And so this spread out part is a challenge that we have to continue to work on. I think one of the things we can do is to continue to encourage people to live downtown. 
to continue to encourage vertical growth in our downtowns. Not everybody agrees with this. Some people like the old charm of St. Petersburg. But the reality is both Tampa and St. Petersburg and Clearwater are all growing up. And I think if we can go more vertical, that creates some more density. That helps the first mile, last mile problem of sort of getting on a, getting off of a bus, getting off of light rail, and having to walk a long distance or trying to get there. If people already live there, then they're going to walk more, they're going to ride their bikes more, um, and they're going to sort of enjoy that community more. And it'll create the density that can help support public transit. Yeah, I think it's definitely not one size fits all. So by saying you want to intensify along a corridor doesn't mean there still aren't a wide range of options for people in the rural areas, the exurban, suburban. So there's something for everyone. But I think for, from a, uh, how do we confront growth from an efficiency standpoint, identifying and you know actually taking some action along key corridors and saying, okay, here's where the stations are going to be. Here's where we're going to intensify development to allow that uh, intensity that Graham was talking about. But it's, again, not saying that everyone has to live in that sort of environment. I've been hearing about transit-oriented development for Mm -hmm. 20 years. I mean, is is anything happening with that? Yeah, I think it is. And I think it – but there needs to be a sense of certainty around, well, where are these spots going to be, where this intensification is going to happen. David, people must find the costs of these transportation projects kind of mind-boggling. Um, From Caitlin Johnston's recent Tampa Bay Times article, she gives us the Pinellas County Manager's Wish List, which includes $35 million to sink stoplight timing along major corridors, $49 million for intersections, including more right and left turn lanes, $50 million for safety projects such as crosswalks, $50 million for crosswalks and $35 million to sink traffic lights. I mean, it sounds... Ridiculous, real. I mean, it sounds like a lot of money. Why is it so expensive? Well, and and I'm not really all that familiar with exactly what his plans are, so I don't want to comment. But um, on that, but what I can tell you is, when you take a signal system, and we're actually doing it with the with the city of Tampa now, um, and you have to, you have hundreds, if not thousands, of traffic signals throughout the area, and you have to take all of the old technology out, which much of it is 1990s. 20-year-old technology, you have to put in the new technology, you have to put the new communications systems in. Some of the other big costs are a lot of times we need to buy right-of-way, and right-of-way is pretty uh-huh. expensive. And so, um, and then the third thing, we don't shut down the road and rebuild it. We keep traffic moving on it while we're rebuilding it. And so, it's, you know, not as easy, and it costs more to do that. It lengthens the time of a, of a project. I think I would add it's important to think about both sides of the equation because cost is only one side. I mean, transportation investments have huge benefits, so way more than one-to-one cost-benefit ratio. So when we're talking about investments, these these systems also last for a long time, and millions of people benefit from them. So if you divide the costs by the number of people who live in the region over their lifetime, it's actually, I mean, at a per-person kind of per-year basis – it's a pretty good deal that we get. We get a high degree of mobility, even though there are, there are issues, there's congestion, but for the most part, we're quite mobile. We have quite a few um, options for travel, and compared to other places, I mean, Florida is a pretty, let's say, low-tax uh, state, and you get a pretty good deal from the investments in transportation. 
And I'd add that in terms of investing in both roads and public transit, one of the things I hear from business leaders in our area and also ones that from are from outside our area is one of their top three issues all the time is transportation. Can they get their employees from their homes, from where they live to where they need to work fairly quickly? Are there enough people in the workforce close enough to where they're going to have their headquarters to get the type of workforce they need, the skilled people they need to come. I hear this over and over again. Part of it is because the economy is going well, so some of the other issues are fading a little bit. But transportation in our area remains almost number one when I talk to business leaders about some of the challenges. That and maybe increasing our skilled workforce. But it comes up over and over again. David Gwynn, you are in the trenches as the secretary, uh, district secretary of transportation. What keeps you awake at night? Probably the biggest thing that, that um, I don't know if it keeps me awake at night so much as just really makes me motivated and, and, and want to do more is uh, we do have a huge safety problem uh, in the Tampa Bay area, especially as it relates to what we call vulnerable road users. Those are our pedestrians, bicyclists, and motorcyclists. We have over 500 people uh, a year in my district that die on our roads. Mm-hmm. Um, over half of those are vulnerable road users. And so we focus on trying to find ways to, to combat that. Some of it is engineering related. We're going to try to slow traffic on our arterials where we have pedestrians by doing engineering changes. We're going to do uh, cooperation with law enforcement. We provide grants to do uh, in areas where we have speeding or we have violations of the rights of way to try to, to give out more warnings and tickets in that area. And we also spend a lot of time um, with education. We uh, work with schools. We work with um, uh, a lot of business groups. We also go out and set up pop-up tents along corridors that have a lot of pedestrian and bicycle crashes because part of it is educating the bicyclists and pedestrian, making sure they have the right equipment on their bicycle, a light, the reflectors. We can provide those to them, a helmet. Others, we can tell pedestrians why it's important to cross at the crosswalk and not cross a couple hundred feet away when there's not a traffic signal. That's probably the thing that worries me the most. We got lots of things to do, but safety is the top priority for for FDOT. That's David Gwynn, District Secretary of Transportation for the Florida Department of Transportation. We've also been speaking with Graham Brink, business columnist for the Tampa Bay Times, and Robert Bertini, Executive Director of the University of South Florida's Center for Urban Transportation Research. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. There are lots of ways to connect with us. You can tweet us at Florida Matters or find us on the WUSF Facebook page. And remember, you can listen to Florida Matters whenever it's convenient for you as a podcast. Search for it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Craig George. The show is produced by Christy Oshana. I'm Robin Sessingham. Thanks for listening.